Hey there, just before we get started, I want to thank our new Patreon, BJ, The Beach. Thank you for supporting the show. And if you too want to be a cool Patreon supporter, just like BJ, you can go to Unseen Academicals Pod. You can go to patreon.com slash Unseen Academicals Pod and sign up there. I think there's still one spot left in the um, the cheaper tier. I can't remember what I've called it, but there's there's eight. The power of the oct, baby. Um, yeah, so thanks again for your support, BJ. And yeah, let's get into the show. And let's get into our second episode on Reaper Man. It's Discworld! It's Discworld! Podcast! Analysis! Yeah! So I'm Josh, and I am still going solo on these Reaper Man episodes. I am trying to tee up some guests for the future ones, but yeah, trying to uh, get these Reaper Man ones out while they're they're fresh and to keep the schedule going. So it's just going to be me again. Don't know if this one will be as rambly as the last one. I'm not going into uh, big existential theories and and ethical uh, philosophies and things like that, but we'll see how we go. So yeah, this is part two of our exploration of Reaper Man, focusing this time on the Wendell Prunes and Fresh Start Club uh, storyline and using it to explore the power of the prologue, disability studies, the origins and ideologies inherent in the novel, theories of humour, vegetarian vampires, bereavement, Alzheimer's, and assisted dying, and do a uh, bit of a misquelled wrap-up at the end as well. Yes, rather than the metaphysical side of Reaper Man in the second part, and I'm thinking all these episodes might just be two parts from now on because that, that seems to be the natural length that they are ending up being because I think there's normally two or three big themes or big ideas per book that I want to look at so we might try and uh, see if that makes things a bit easier with the new format now that I don't have to necessarily uh, factor in the availability of another co-host unless I have guests on and things um, and try and just yeah get maybe have two episodes out per book but try and get them done within a month a month and a half of each other uh, but yeah we're not talking about the big metaphysical ideas that we covered uh, I'm still saying we but that I covered last episode which focused on the the death side of, of the story which yeah is, is the major one that everybody talks about and remembers. And I said in that episode that I just sort of ignored the secondary um, B-plot with the wizards and the, um, the shopping trolleys and things, uh, which I'm still ignoring because it's sort of a surface level kind of thing and, and I'm not that interested in it. Uh, but what I did unfairly neglect was Wendell Poons and the Fresh Start Club, which are obviously an important part of not just the book, um, but of the Discworld series as a whole, given that it's the introduction of these, um, I guess, disenfranchised different fantasy species I think it's the first time we get a real proper treatment of that. And obviously that's where, and that's where a lot of the later series goes and ends up exploring mostly through the watch and the, um, uh, the city novels rather than the death ones. But I wasn't really sure what to say about them. Uh, much like the, the trolleys and things that seemed like a surface level, uh, sort of thing. But yeah, I had a listener of the show named Liz who lives in France write in and, and share her thoughts about the novel. And she came up with some very interesting observations that seem really obvious, or at least the core idea of them is obvious, not the specific reading itself, but um, yeah, she was analysing the, or interpreting the uh, first, what are they called? The Fresh Start Club, uh, in terms of disability, which, yeah, again, seems very obvious, and maybe this is being said elsewhere in informal reviews or blogs and things like that, but I haven't seen it brought up anywhere at all in any of the academic scholarship that I've been looking at, which is all preoccupied with the metaphysical stuff that I talked about in the first episode, and really honing in on death, and like we talked about, the passages that get cited in every article about a specific text. 
Alex talking about the water going down the mountain, which is abroad. Every article on Reaper Man cites the uh, speech he gives to Asriel at the end. But even those ones that do touch on the Fresh Start Club, like myself, interpret it as more of a civil rights, as in as in uh, racial and cultural civil rights, rather than disability studies, which when you think about it, like and, and as we'll get into, all the, the Fresh Start, they're not just outcasts because of their species. They are, I guess, disabled versions of their species in that you have the reverse werewolf, you have the vegetarian vampire that we'll talk about later, and of course, Prunes, who's in a wheelchair, right? Um, so very obviously pointing to disability, but I think because of the greater presence of the um, cultural civil rights campaigns and just where Pratchett's analogies of these sorts of things go in the later books, it, it gets overlooked. And when I dug into it, there's there's a lot there, and I, and I mean a lot. This, this could be a long one. So yes, on this episode, I'm going to be looking at reading the Fresh Start Club and some sides of the, the death of Miss Flitworth's story um, in terms of disability studies. And through that, I'm also going to be touching upon some of Pratchett's late life work and writings about euthanasia and, and the right to death, which obviously tie in with the themes of Reaper Man. And I think goes to show that a lot of the things he ended up promoting quite, quite publicly and successfully in his later life in response to his Alzheimer's diagnosis really were there in his philosophy from the start, or, you know, at least as far back as 1991. So it wasn't just a reaction to his situation. I think the way he reacted to his Alzheimer's is representative of a deep philosophy that Pratchett held that he is very explicitly trying to um, share through Reaper Man. And yeah, I, I want to caution against, you know, reading the opinions of, of characters as the opinions of their authors. Though in the case of Reaper Man, I think it's pretty clear that, like I mentioned on the previous episode uh, about this being a didactic Bill Dunks Man. I mean, this is very clearly trying to impart a specific, if not message, then, then way of looking at the world and philosophy here that I think it's not a stretch to attribute to Pratchett and also the readings about his personal philosophy and his sort of first-hand opinions are back up. But yeah, I do want to caution against reading all books and all characters as as representative of their author's opinions, but I think, yeah, Ripman is a pretty clear example where those two ideologies line up. Before we get into all of that, though, I want to spend a bit of time discussing the prologue and I guess the the epilogues to Ripman and Pratchett's Discworld books, um, which is something else Liz pointed out. And I I guess speaks to why maybe I and a lot of others overlooked the Fresh Start Club or, or really felt a disconnect between the two or three. I guess there's three. There's the um, death and Miss Flitworth stuff, which also incorporates the auditors and the metaphysical side of things. And then the, on the wizard side, you have the invasion of the shopping trolleys, but also the, the Fresh Start Club story. But yeah, for myself and other academics who either ignored this part of the story or felt disconnected from it, are perhaps overlooking the prologue or the... Um, the introduction to the story, which does feel disconnected from its main plot, but if you read it, it's telling you, and, and this is true of all books, like when I'm teaching students, I always say, pay the most attention to the first page of a book and the last page of a book, because these are telling you what the book's been about. It's like when you write an essay and you write an introduction, say, here's what I'm going to show, and then you have the conclusion that says, this is what I've shown you, and here's what we've learned. It's the same is true for most novels, right? The first page is going, here's what this book's about, and then the last page is going, that's what the book's about, this is what it means. I mean, you have to do a bit more analyzing there, but it's it's normally there. So yes, I, I feel very silly sort of overlooking it because I guess 11 books into the series, this kind of zoomed out introduction and then the meandering through the different vignettes is sort of a stylistic staple of Pratchett's writing, uh, which we'll get into more about in a second. So yes, it, there's a tendency to sort of skip through it and, and get to the central story. Uh, but I think in the case of Rupert Man, by not doing a, a bit of a closer reading of those sections, you're perhaps setting yourself up to, or I was setting myself up to miss the connections between uh, the different themes and their greater significance. Um, yeah, indeed.
Liz, Liz herself says that she finds it illuminating and enjoyable to when she's finished a book to go and go back and immediately read the first couple of pages and, and sort of reflect on the connection between what was there that you may have forgotten and then where they've got to at the end of the book. And since writing in about this, Liz and I have been talking a bit and she's actually gone away and made a chart um, of the different formal characteristics of Pratchett's prologues, uh, which is very impressive and quite relatable given my ongoing uh, vampire uh, chart that I'm talking about. And yeah, I don't have time to go into everything about this chart, but some useful observations that could be made when uh, we laid the chart out and had a look at the different changes over a chronological period is that a staple of the early series, at least, is the use of different vignettes, like little short um, slice of life stories um, at the start of the book. So in the case of Reaper Man, we get the prologue with Death and the Auditors, but then we get the, the trees and the mayflies and sort of hitting the same themes from different angles and different examples. And all of this is is according to Liz's subjective definitions and identifications, and I haven't had time to go back through 41 books and read the prologues of them and, and double check everything. But according to her categorizations, this use of vignettes is, is almost consistent throughout the first half of the Discworld series, before dropping off almost completely. So this is perhaps more of a, a stylistic shift in Pratchett's writing as, as he um, goes on. Uh, but interestingly, all the death following Mort start with vignettes, so which might be uh, by the fact that the death sequence is limited to uh, the first half of the series, or I think Thief of Time is a little bit outside the first half. But yeah, the death sequence is contained within the first part of the series. So perhaps he was, um, yeah, just a coincidence that it's stylistically matched up. But I think given the metaphysical nature of the death book's themes and preoccupations, that this really is something that perhaps adds to the book. So something to keep in mind as we go through the next couple of books. Conversely, instances of Pratchett going straight into the story, as, as Liz calls it, but I guess, yeah, starting, if not um, in the middle of the action, with our primary character getting into the primary plot of the novel, are extremely rare. Yeah, the vignettes are present in 23 of the 41 novels, so that's 56%, just over half the series, whereas we get straight into the plot in only 7 out of the 41 Discworld novels, so 17%. But more interestingly, I think, is that these instances of the uh, straight into the story example that Liz identifies are all clustered in a specific period between 2002 and 2004. You have four books in a row, Nightwatch, The Wee Free Man, Monstrous Regiment, and A Hatful of Sky, that all sort of start off with the, the main character doing the main thing. And then you have a couple more examples within the next couple of years. You have there's three books, Going Postal, Thud, Wintersmith. Then you have Making Money from 2007, which Liz says is a straight into the action story. And then there's Unseen Academicals in between. And then I Shall Wear Midnight, uh, the third Tiffany Aching book to begin with getting straight into the story. Whereas the only earlier book that Liz says uh, gets straight into the story is Sorcery, which does begin with the orphaning of coin. I don't know if, if I would count that one because it does have the prelude paragraph there. So again, these categorizations are uh, subjective, but I think they'd be, um, if not entirely accurate, fairly representative. Like, So it's interesting that Pratchett seems to, yes, have picked up this or done away with this stylistic prologue that really has been a defining aspect of his writing for the previous years and does it for a few books, but then sort of does away with it uh, pretty quickly. Um, I, I also went and checked uh, Pratchett's pre-Discworld books for comparison, and I found that the two sci-fi books, the two sci- the two science fiction books, Strata and the Dark Side of the Sun, jump straight into the story, while the fantasy one, The Carpet People, has this mythological prelude about the history of the carpet world and things. So this also seems to be a, a generic convention rather than a Pratchett-specific uh, stylistic convention, right? Fantasy has this epic history, especially Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and things, uh, which Pratchett is influenced by. So perhaps it's just the fact that he is writing in that fantasy mode 
mode that is inspiring these sort of drawn out preludes because yes despite not bringing it back until uh 2002 he is doing it earlier in his science fiction novels also in, in his later non-discworld books the more realistic dodger jumps straight into the story while the more mythological nation which is still presented as a realist story but has a bit of more of a fantastic and mythological element to it it has this prologue chapter that is a creation myth so yeah and i, I haven't checked the johnny and the bromeliad books but perhaps there is some insight there as well this is the kind of a uh, textual analysis formal analysis that i'm not really inclined to but yes there's something liz noticed and picked up but i think anyone who's read a, a couple of uh discord books is sort of aware of pratchett's zoom out zoom in style of the book which is an obvious parody of the the bible right the genesis starts off with the creation of the universe and zooms in until you get to the garden of eden and everything but uh liz points out that there used to be a nightly children's program uh shown just before the uh 6 p.m bbc news in the 1970s called the clangers and every episode of that began with the narrator um panning from the earth panning across the universe and to the earth and then zooming down into the the clangers home so given the time period 1970s britain there it's possibly that is a more direct and more ironic or comedic influence for pratchett but again according to liz's categorizations this sort of panning in only takes place among a few of the the early books so in the color of magic skips the light fantastic which starts off as a continuation of um rinse wind falling off the edge of the disc from the previous book but then you yeah you have the uh zoom in in equal rights and more and then according to liz he doesn't reuse this technique at least not at the the beginning in the prologue part of the book until the fifth elephant uh which if that's accurate is interesting to me because the the fifth elephant book is where that cosmological view of the actual structure of the elephants becomes relevant to the plot so he brings it back once it becomes relevant to his story again uh, something else liz suggested is that along with the bible and other you know traditional examples of this zooming in style um where you know it goes from the universe and then there's the turtle and the elephants and the disc and everything yeah although it's interesting that he doesn't use it again in the last hero where the, that cosmological vision is also relevant so yeah i'm not sure what to make of that but these are the kind of observations you can make when you do chart things out and then start to <laughs> someone else maybe to put it the significance together but um yes it was interesting looking over there but yeah as liz reminds me paying attention to the the prologue and the the epilogue of a book um can be important to interpreting what it's about and it can often illuminate the kinds of things that if you read and, and just go well what's all this about how do these connect to the story without taking into account that thematic framing um and liz points out that this is a very important part of uh, shakespeare's writing where you like we've talked about the uh, if we shadows have offended epilogue from a midsummer science dream uh, that that might have been in the uh sandman bonus episode we did but i think I, I know we've talked about that previously but also the soliloquy by benedict the end of uh, much ado about nothing tells you how to interpret these events that otherwise yes are much ado about nothing and that speech sort of ties it all together and tells you what the point of it all is and then Liz says most notably True Houses prologue from Romeo and Juliet tells you that the story is less about the specific love story between its two teenage protagonists but rather this ongoing feud between their two families that you know it opens with the statement about this story being about two households both alike in dignity but by the time you get to the suicide at the end and everything you might have forgotten that that yeah that, that's really what this story is about and Liz connects this to Reaper Man. The Reaper Man is not just about death's journey or even Wendell Poons' journey through the story, but is a meditation on death itself oh, and Liz says of imminent end of loss and conversely of the joy of life and fellowship. And she specifically points out the portrayal of the elderly in connection to the mayflies and the candy pines and suggests that perhaps the significance of these uh, vignettes is lost a bit in their comedic treatment, which maybe doesn't get across the, the seriousness of where the exploration of these themes go 
prose in the later novel. But yeah, the, the observation there is that rather than just being about the metaphysical aspects of death, it's also about the human experience of death and the experience of those in its proximity. And she's put all of this in all of these thoughts into a, like a review essay. Um, she's titled Terry Pratchett's Reaper Man, Death or Death, which she's uploaded. She started a, a blog, um, which is called Some Liz Thoughts on Discworld, which is at blogspot.com. So if you want to read more of Liz's thoughts on Reaper Man, you can check that out. And, and she connects this to ideas of disability and bereavement that I'm going to get into for the rest of this episode. This sent me down a, a real rabbit hole about disability studies and things that I, I think are very pertinent to a, a reading of Reaper Man. So I'm very thankful to Liz for writing in with um, this extensive reading of, of Reaper Man. And yeah, she's essentially inspired the analysis about a book I really was struggling to find things out about uh, before I went into it. So yeah, thanks for the inspiration there, Liz. And if you're listening to the show like Liz and, and you have some specific thoughts or questions about the book, so don't be afraid to write in with them. I think we have the email that is unseenacademicalspod at gmail.com. I don't know if they'll inspire an entire episode the way this one did, but uh, yeah, so let's get into the analysis. What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm trying to do a reading of Reaper Man through the lens of disability studies, which I'll explain in a bit. Now, disclaimer, this is not something I have a significant amount of experience with or even perspective on. I, I am not disabled, or at least I don't consider myself disabled. You know, I'm not even entirely comfortable with the, the term disability, and I know some disability studies theorists or activists have, have problems with that term. That does seem to be the term that has been arrived upon within the world of disability studies itself. I mean, that's what it identifies as, and that's what the scholars who have developed this school of thought have arrived on calling it. So that's that's what I'm I'm going with for this. But as we'll discuss, there is some stigma attached to just the, the idea of disability itself. This is something I am new to, um, and I have done a, a fair amount of reading, but I don't pretend to have any kind of authority or expertise about disability studies. I'm relying on the sources that I found and, and went to, and I'm presenting my understanding as how it relates to uh, Reaper Man and uh, my reading of that book. So with all those disclaimers out of the way, let's get into it. Yeah, as Christopher Krenz explains in his chapter on disability studies in the 2018 Wiley Blackwell Companion to Literary Theory, uh, which is sort of my default literary theory book that I go to if, if someone asked me for like an, an overview of the actual theoretical side of, of literary analysis. So if that is something you're interested in, I recommend checking out that one. That is the uh, Companion to Literary Theory published by Wiley Blackwell from 2018. But as Krenz explains in that book, the modern disability movement can be traced to the late 1960s when disabled activists in the United States and the United Kingdom began to argue that, that they were a group that were denied basic rights and began actively contesting traditional negative perceptions of themselves as pitiable individuals with tragic medical problems. And and he says the significance of this movement in the 1960s is whereas previous activist groups such as veterans and the blind had only really ever advocated f separately for their own interests, these modern disability activists consciously built on the concurrent civil rights movement, presenting themselves as a unified group facing widespread discrimination. So they're, they're banding together, and I guess this ties in with, with Reaper Man's themes of individuality and collective action, right? This movement only really solidified and or became politically effective once it grouped together rather than fighting individual battles. And yes, yeah, speaks to Reg Shu and the Fresh Start Club's ethos that everybody is welcome. But along with this unified front came the radical redefinition of disability as a subjective or culturally defined position rather than an objective medical one, which arguably stigmatized disabled people as damaged and inferior and in need of rehabilitation or cure. Right? This is sort of analogous to second wave feminism, which moves the idea of the feminine from an inherent um, biological property to a social inflicted or at 
least imparted one, uh, which if you want to know more about that, you can go read uh, the second sex, Moon de Beauvoir, who we mentioned, who was um, had a ongoing romantic relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre, who we talked about at length last episode. Yeah, and then it also sort of follows um, the later third wave um, feminist philosophy of uh, Judith Butler, who we talked about on the, the Unseen Academic episode, but um, by suggesting the idea that by, by framing individuality as this paradoxical virtue that is socially defined, yet also synonymous with um, individual integrity. And I don't know if this is um, something that can necessarily be resolved, and I'm certainly not going to do it on a uh, podcast about a fantasy series. But yeah, this cultural redefinition of disability comes directly out of group activism, with modern disability studies guru uh, Simi Linton observing in her immensely influential 1998 book, Claiming Disability, that people as disparate as the blind and those with cognitive disabilities or people who use wheelchairs actually have very little in common regarding their disability, other than the social and political circumstances that have forged them together as a group. Right? It is the way they are categorized by society that brings them together rather than them having anything in common physically. And here we begin to see a bit of tension that between Reaper, the ideologies are being presented in Reaper Man about individuality and, and the importance of individual care versus the effectiveness and necessity of group activism, which again, I'm sure is deliberate on Pratchett's part. I don't think these are disparate themes. I think he's specifically contrasting the individual uh, philosophies of death and Miss Flitworth versus the collective activism and resistance of the Fresh Start Club and their teaming up with the wizards against the, the shopping trolleys and things. But in light of this recognition of the social categorization of disability, recent scholars such as Tom Shakespeare have called for more sophisticated methods that recognize different levels of analysis and intervention that include both the medical and socio-political. And another sort of more recent postmodern criticism of the earlier disability uh, movement is that a, a rights-based approach that, yeah, emphasizes legal rights and legal stand necessarily leads to a quite limited and conservative goal of making sure that each disenfranchised group only has the rights of white middle-class males. Right? That, that is the ideology they're aiming for, um, and therefore the idea of equal rights can only ever um, sustain middle-class capitalism as a, a normative goal. It doesn't challenge or, or redefine society's perception, rather it, it seeks to reinforce it by extending it. Again, there, there are contradictions inherent in here, but um, yeah, it's this contrast between abstract rights as opposed to the actual provision of, of opportunities for people. And, and while this is a, a complex um, idea that I am not really equipped to unpack, I recognize that it's also inherently tied up with the very definition of disability and, and its interaction with labor, which uh, disability scholar Robert McCrua likens in his 2002 article, Compulsory Able-Bodiedness and the Queer Disabled Existence. And then, and then you have disability scholars like Robert McCrua in whose uh, 2002 article, Compulsory Able-Bodiedness and the Queer Disabled Existence, building on ideas of queer theory and queer studies to develop an idea of compulsory able-bodiedness by which being able-bodied means being capable of the normal physical exertions required in a particular system of labor. So this is to say that the idea of being able or non-disabled, it's not objective. It begs the question, able to do what? All right, so it requires some kind of reference, making it a, a normative state. There is an ideology of what people should be able to do. And if you shift that ideology, then the very definition of, of who is able-bodied and and who is not becomes completely redefined. Uh, there's some obvious connections here to Miss Flitworth, who I'll talk about a bit later, who, as I discussed in the last episode, is a stand-in for this um, sort of pastoral ideology that I have problems with for, yeah, reinforcing the ideology of hard labor as, as the ideal goal to achieve. I'll talk about her a bit more later, and we're also going to go into a lot more depth about 
labor and things uh, when we get to soul music. So I'll, I'll leave that there for the moment. Um, but it's something to keep in mind as we get into um, a literary analysis of, of disability and its representations. Because along with um, this boost in political uh, disabilities activism, also came the rise of cultural disability studies, which of course includes the analysis of literature about, by, and, and representing disabled people and disabled bodies, which Reaper Man and, and the Fresh Start Club are a obvious example. So in his 1995 book Enforcing Normalcy, Leonard J. Davis suggests that 19th century novels often reinforce the notions of an able-bodied norm in terms of both normal as in regular, but also normative as in something to aspire to. And they did this, he argues, through featuring able-bodied non-heroic people as protagonists, while disabled characters typically only had marginal roles, such as that of Tiny Tim in Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, yes, which I'll talk more about in relation to Hogfather when we get to those episodes. But we've already talked about this idea specifically in relation to 19th century novels uh, in the Masquerade episode, where we talked about the Phantom of the Opera and the development of the Gothic villain, who was typically disfigured with that sort of bodily disfigurement meant to be a, a stand-in or a signifier of their disfigured morality as well. So yeah, if you haven't gone back and listened to that episode, go way in depth on that in there. But Davis develops this point further in his rather brilliantly titled 2002 book, Bending Over Backwards, Disability, Dysmodernism, and Other Difficult Positions, arguing that a binary distinction between normal and abnormal, in fact, underpins the entire idea of the novel itself. And this sounds like a pretty far-fetched idea, um, and, and I think he's being deliberately provocative, but there's definitely something to this, even if he's perhaps uh, overclaiming. But he's not alone, because uh, similarly, David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder argue in their earlier book, Narrative Prosthesis, from uh, 2000, that canonical Western authors frequently employed disability as a sort of crutch, and then that is their term, not mine. Definitely appreciate a lot of the, the puns in uh, the uh, the disability studies stuff. So yeah, they say many canonical or influential Western authors frequently employed disability as a kind of crutch, while ultimately reaffirming normalcy in their works, including Shakespeare with Richard III and, and Herman Melville and, and um, Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, and also um, they have a chapter analysing Nietzsche and his idea of the Overman, the Ubermensch, which directly informs uh, Sartre's existentialist humanist philosophy that we talked about last episode. So yeah, this divide between disabled and, and able-bodied and, and what that those disabilities are meant to signify is built into the Western literary and philosophical tradition, according to them. Now, as much as Davis is talking about the, the novel of a form, primarily here he's talking about the novel not, not as a physical form, as a, as a prose book of substantial length as we would understand it today, but he's primarily talking about the novel as a genre, the way it would have been used during these formative 18th and 19th century uh, periods. So yeah, as, as opposed to earlier writers of fantastic romances and epics, the novel was seen as a new genre that, um, as Davis defines it, treated real life in a familiar way that appeared to be true without the intrusion of elements that did not appear natural. So we're talking about realist fiction, what, what I would call domestic dramas, right? Um, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but yeah, it is frustrating that in literature, you can't say drama because drama is associated with the theatre. So if you say drama, you're thinking a play, a Shakespeare play or something. And maybe this doesn't make sense to anyone anymore. Streaming services and things have these ridiculous, wacky names. But you used to go into a video store and you'd look through the genres and there'd be fantasy and science fiction and, and horror and suspense and things, but there would be drama. 
long. And we don't really have that as a genre in literature, right? It's realist fiction, but that sort of encompasses everything. You can have realist horror and suspense stories and things, whereas the idea of, of what would be called drama in uh, film and television is just sort of taken as some kind of transcendent, uncharacterizable higher art. And, th- and this is something Pratchett himself has pushed back. I mean, there, there's a BBC interview I'm going to be talking about next episode in relation to uh, uh, soul music uh, on the Desert Island Disc program. But in there, Pratchett specifically says that the Booker Prize winning books are a specific genre of literature, right? And and what has become regarded as transcendent. And, and in many um, people who argue for this distinction between um, low and high literature, one of a common argument is that higher literature is, is undefinable, right? It doesn't have common tropes. It's it's our, Each book is its own dependent thing. Uh, whereas, yes, if you compare all the books that have won the Booker Prize or are, are taught in uh, literature classes, yeah, I think you'll find a lot of recurring tropes. And I've had my students write out such tables in, in class before. But um, as Davis argues, part of the Disabilities um, Studies Project or Disability Activism then is to examine literary history and show how people with disabilities have been historically constructed and have been largely negatively depicted by the dominant able-bodied culture. And it's interesting, again, that the two of his primary examples of this um, come from Dickens, as we've been charting through these episodes, shows up as a frequent point of reference, if not direct influence on Pratchett's death sequence here, being Tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol, and also the uh, grotesque dwarf from uh, Dickens' Curiosity Shop. Uh, he also gives the sort of intermediate examples of Quasimodo from uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, who is seen as a, a sympathetic character and is remade into one through the Disney adaptation. Again, go back and listen to uh, the uh, Witches Abroad episodes uh, to hear all about that. Um, and Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, who is not necessarily a villainous character, but who, who is underdone by his obsession with, with chasing down Moby Dick, uh, and that is represented in his, his physical disfigurement. Davis even goes so far as to say that there is virtually no major protagonist in any 18th or 19th century novel who is in some way disabled or disfigured. Davis does give the counterexample of the pockmarked and supposedly unintelligent and seemingly depressed Esther Summerson from Dickens Bleak House, uh, who is a protagonist or at least narrator of her story, uh, although whether it is a positive portrayal is up for debate if you know anything about that book, but yeah, Davis does acknowledge that as an exception, but maintains that disabled people in 18th and 19th century novels are almost exclusively uh, villains or at most these sort of standing characters who are utterly innocent, um, you know, who are children or childlike or um, women or, or aged characters who are who are seen as frail, that they are sort of victims of their circumstances rather than active protagonists in their stories. And as I observe, in the works of these influential authors, disability first requires an explanation, right? The idea of it, it being removed from the norm or being something unknowable or uncommon inspires the very need to tell a story to explain it, they say. And then they say that these authors' narratives then offer an account of the cause and consequences of the disability, bringing their character's disability from the margins into the center of the story before finally curing, rehabilitating, or eliminating the disability, thereby restoring a sense of order. Now, this is similar to the stuff we talked about in regard to the gothic villain and the Phantom of the Opera in Masquerade, and I think it applies here as well, because if we if we think about Wendell Poons as the disabled representative, right, he's, he's in the wheelchair, but also that he has an improper or unnatural death or, or lack thereof, right? His disability is he can't die, which itself is ironic and a subversion. Um, but yeah, he, he follows this pat. The fact that he can't die is so far out of the normal conventions that the entire story is then built around explaining why it happens. It inspires the 
the wizards to try and try and get to the bottom of it, which makes Wendell Poons, who's previously appeared as this sort of comic relief side character in um, moving pictures, he's now the central protagonist of this story, a central protagonist of the story, of, of his side of the plot anyway, which ultimately ends with him being cured of, of having his disability of not being able to die eliminated and the natural order and way of dying returned to the world. So essentially, Wendell is cured of his fantasy disability. So while its representation might be subversive, its formal treatment, in fact, normalizes death and in one way of looking at it, normalizes disability rather than subverting these claims, which ties into this frequent idea that we've come back to with the analysis of Mort and Reaper Man so far of fantasy as this restorative genre that and that Pratchett seems to be playing into this idea of restoration rather than subverting it, even if the details along the way are subversive. And indeed, in her chapter on disability and fantasy in the 2019 collection Disability Disability Literature and Genre, Rhea Cheney argues that in fantasy in particular, disability serves as a reminder of the frailty and vulnerability of human bodies and minds, and that disability itself, therefore, disrupts fantasy's traditional escapist, effective trajectory because of the feelings of loss and grief that are associated with disability in the Western cultural imagination, which then undercut the sense of hope and optimism that a lot of fantasy aims to evoke. Um, She says that disability's associations with dependency and inability and passivity also threaten to undermine the aspirational, heroic, and achieving ethos of fantasy, and that for this reason, disabled protagonists who stay disabled tend to appear only in works that write back to or disrupt fantasy's conventions, pointing out in particular the grimdark fantasies of someone like Joe Abercrombie or George R. R. Martin. And Pratchett is doing that here, but as as I just discussed, he is sticking to this this format. But yeah, despite its marginal place in uh, fantasy literature, Cheney also notes that disability is frequently linked with magic in fantasy fiction, with disabled people often having privileged access to magic or uh, their disabilities being cured or created by magical means. I mean, an obvious um, example that jumped to my mind, given the, the recent reading I've been doing, I've talked on the uh, what, what Have You Been Reading episodes about how I've been reading all the Stephen King books that began with the uh, Dark Tower series, and where one of the protagonists of that is a um, very strangely written <laughs> woman uh, named uh, Susanna, uh, who is a black woman that Stephen King reminds you is black at, at every opportunity, but she is begins the story, but she, she has multiple personalities and begins the story literally split into two different characters, and that is before she goes to the, the fantasy realm of the Dark Tower. This is when she's in like the, the real world section. She has two characters, one of whom is in a wheelchair, and through the events of the, the second book of that novel is then united into a single and less politically outraged and indignant character. Other obvious examples I think are Professor X from the X-Men comics um, and films, right? The whole point of him is that his mind is so powerful, but his body is frail, and I'm sure there's, you know, a million examples of that sort of contrast. Uh, another obvious comics example is, is Daredevil, right, who is blind, but all these other um, senses are, you know, super powerful, which is a whole um, trope, you know, this idea of the blind swordsman or the blind seer, which dates back at least to um, Oedipus. Um, so Alice isn't here to talk about it anymore, but the character of Contemplation from um, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen has gone blind from old age, but he's the only one who is able to show uh, the Red Cross Knight a vision of what heaven will look like. So yeah, this is a long-standing tradition of uh, blind seers, blind swordsmen, things like that. And this is a, a fairly persistent trope in Discworld itself, because you obviously have the leader of the gods, Blind Io, who has uh, empty eye sockets, but thousands of eyes that fly around and can supposedly see everything. It's also very common in the Witched series. We have Old Mother Dismas, who has a detached retina in her second sight, right? She has disabled um, uh, super sight, um, and Desideria and Desiderata Hollow, uh, 
um, who uses who is blind but uses her second sight to look into the present. Um, and then you also have Miss Treason from Wintersmith, uh, who is deaf and blind, but who is able to see and hear by borrowing the eyes and ears of, of other animals. So yeah, there becomes a bit of a tension here between these characters as empowerment fantasies versus fetishizations of uh, disabled people, which uh, Pratchett also directly addresses in Discworld Small Gods, wherein the blind philosopher Dodactylos uh, claims that the whole blind people's other senses a superhuman thing was simply made up by sighted people so that they could feel better about themselves. So in that case, yes, Pratchett is directly writing back to um, this uh, marginal depiction of um, disability rather than reinforcing a return to the norm. Cheney also talks about the trope of the sort of overpowered wheelchair, which Professor X has his cool like floating one. It doesn't really do anything. But in moving pictures, this trope is sort of subverted because Wendell Poon's wheelchair has a number of these outrageous attachments that don't really do anything, right? They're just there for fun. Um, and you also have Mad Hamish's battle wheelchair and Interesting Times and The Last Hero, which uh, has spiked wheels and things. So Pratchett's playing with these ideas as well. So yeah, Davis describes um, a, a modern scholarly tension between what he calls the originist idea um, that the novel was uh, a historical form uh, from the early modern period that is dependent on early modern technologies, which participate in the transformation of the social, political, and cultural life that was produced by capitalism and bourgeois liberalism during the 18th century. And, that, and that's been a long-standing traditional position. For postmodern scholars, however, largely inspired by philosophers like um, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Lucira Gary, Jean Bourgeois, that's the simulacra guy, uh, Judith Butler, uh, Edward Said, and Jacques Lacan, all of whom I think we, we've talked about previously on, on the podcast. For these modern or postmodern scholars, uh, Davis says, Gone is the myth of the novel, a discrete form, a knowable practice that arose at a specific time for a specific purpose. Instead, it is now often considered by modern critics as not so much a knowable thing, but a process and a prejudice in writing that privileges certain power relations in the interest of cultural capital and class-based positionality. And Davis argues that something that is characteristic of the split between normal and abnormal that arose during uh, the formative period of the novel as we know it is a distinction between normal and abnormal bodies and minds. Davis's point here is that novels were novel, right? Novel meaning new. This was a new form, a new genre of literature, precisely because they were engaged in depicting this idea of an average or normal life, everyday experiences rather than the traditionally estranged romances or epics, uh, which is all, I think, pretty clear-cut. But then Davis takes this a step further and argues that the novel, on some profound level, emerges in an ideological form of symbolic production whose central binary is normal versus abnormal. And the reason why this is, he says, is that in order for realist fiction to be representative, we get this development of the average citizen, right? The average Joe, the everyman, as we would think of it today. So you end up with this ideological culture creation of an allegedly average, non-heroic, middle-class, supposedly real protagonist, right? We, we talked about this in relation to Mort, that one of the uh, subversions of the fantasy genre that Pratchett was doing there was putting a supposedly average or specifically kind of um, untalented uh, everyday character in the traditional fantasy position of the chosen one or the great hero. And Pratchett has said on a number of occasions that the whole premise for Discworld was to have a fantasy world populated by average 
people who react to fantasy in supposedly normal ways, right? But as we've pointed out before, the supposedly average normal people in in Pratchett's books are quite homogenous, right? They're they're all these middle-class English characters. Most of his heroes are white men, which in some ways uh, is a parody of the heroes of other writers whose characters were all white men. So just in sending up the conventions, he has to play into them a little bit. And and obviously there's the exception of, of Granny and the Witches. But in glorifying someone like Vimes, who becomes institutionalized and and reinforces that institution, or even more, he reinforces this normalized middle-class English ideology, right? I mean, even when he challenges it, characters like Nut in Unseen Academicals or the other Watch members, they're not the protagonists of their stories. These sideline characters that Davis is talking about, whose tension with the story and the society in which it's set, becomes a form of of disability or ostracizing um, that requires an explanation, and then by the end of the novels or the end of the cycle, is cured or removed, and and as I brought up before in the analysis of Unseen Academicals, is cured or resolved less through an incorporation of these people into the society, but of those people's incorporation or adherence to the ideological standards of this very English middle-class Ankh-Morpork society that Pratchett's constructed. And yeah, no, none of these characters are the heroes of their stories. They are only ever seen through the eyes of, you know, an, an often average white male perspective. We see the other members of the Watch primarily through the eyes of Vimes, and they are judged by the way he reacts and, and he feels about them. And yeah, the Granny and the Witches are an exception, but those books aren't really dealing with this uh, these kinds of cultural clashes. They're dealing with, with other themes. And lest you think this is Davis or myself projecting this onto um, authors, uh, he gives a, a pretty damning example of the English author E.M. Forster, who in a 1927 series of lectures on the aspects of the novel, says that although one knows a book isn't real, still one does expect it to be natural, and that and that the inclusion of an unnatural character, such as an angel or a midget or a ghost, uh, that's Foster's language, not mine there, this angel or midget or ghost, no, it is too much, and that the the idea of, of uh, you know, a little person, someone with a disability, or someone who is seen as having a, a disability in uh, English middle-class society, is equated to angels or ghosts, right? It would be unrealistic to have a little person come into your house as much as a, go- a ghost or an angel. And then there is a similar assumption of conservative responses to, like, multiracial castings. Um, there's this idea that it is somehow unrealistic that characters wouldn't be white or, or even intermingle with non-white characters, right? You know, I've, I've encountered people who have genuinely argued that it is unrealistic or somehow historically inaccurate um, for fantasy stories to have female protagonists, despite the fact that they're in an unreal world with magic and dragons. Um, as we also touched upon in the analysis of Unseen Academicals, this is, of course, all tied up with eugenics, right? This cultural consolidation of the average Joe protagonist within middle-class English literature um, also coincides with the development of statistics by the Belgian astronomer um, Adolf Quitlet, who physically measured people in an attempt to define the average man, right? And that, that's hundreds of years before we get what we think of as eugenics today. But similarly, Francis Galton, who coined the term eugenics and was, was a cousin of Charles Darwin, but he similarly sought a racial average through laying photographs of, of people over the top of each other and trying to come up with this, this composite average human. So this is a preoccupation of both literary and scientific English society during these years that the novel is getting developed and uh, formalized. A result of this is um, that you end up with an ideology of stasis, that the idea is to always conform rather than deviate from the norm. And this is seen through the simultaneous consolidation of 
um, the idea of normal rather than mean, um, a, a shift in the definition of the word normal away from normative, um, idealized, to average, standard, how we understand it today. If you look at the definition of normal in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is itself a normative appeal to um, an English bourgeois authority, but it provides uh, earlier implied usages from 1598 and 1706 that, that are in line with, with our understanding of, of normal today. But the use of normal to mean average um, does become common during the, the 1800s, just as the now obsolete usage of normal to mean an ideal was going out of fashion. And indeed, the, the secondary definition of normal in the OED of a person physically and mentally sound, free from any disorder, healthy, uh, this definition dates to 1886. So yeah, we, we see a shift in the, the very definition of normal. It's English or European literature and science are simultaneously trying to pin down and, and reinforce these ideas. Moreover, the evaluation and criticism of novels during this period was less concerned with, with how good and interesting their stories were, but was primarily concerned with how virtuous their characters were and how probable their portrayals were, which is to say they were judged on the extent to which they conformed to the cultural norm, with Davis claiming it is virtually impossible to find any discussion about the formal aspects of a novel as opposed to its virtuous content, which is what this formal analysis is, is the thing Buckton was trying to do when he talked about defining the Bildungsroman. So yeah, looking at all this, it's pretty clear that the novel was primarily developed as an ideological rather than formal uh, genre. As Davis goes on to discuss, characters in 18th century British novels therefore became national stereotypes. They embodied English values. And he says that although love stories might offer cross-national or cross-class liaisons, they usually ended up ratifying the norm, with Kim and Tarzan providing the most egregious examples wherein the subjects are pervious to cultural assimilation. Which I only bring up to point out that both Kim by Rudyard Kipling, who uh, did The Jungle Book, and Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs are 20th century novels, right? They come around in the early 1900s, so I'm not sure they line up with Davis's analysis, but they do sort of prove his point that by the time we get to the 1900s, these ideas have been solidified in the culture, and we're now getting particularly egregious examples. Moreover, um, as Davis points out, protagonists of, of realist novels, we're told, must change for their stories to be interesting or their characters to be believable, though Davis argues that this aspect of believability flies in the face of probability, since most real people don't change easily, if at all, suggesting that the unusual abnormalities encountered by the uh, protagonists of uh, realist novels are hardly what we would call probable or average, right? Sort of the, the idea of a an interesting realist story is something improbable has to happen to the characters, but that these characters themselves aren't allowed to uh, be improbable. Also, there is a double move of idealization here in that the characters themselves have to be abnormal, but also as much as they are perhaps put in improbable, unlikely situations, the point of their plots is always to return them to the middle-class norm by the, the end of the story. And, and Davis says here that so Emma is cured of her self-centeredness and Darcy is cured of his pride, right? referring to um, Jane Austen's Emma and Pride and Prejudice there. And this, I think, is an interesting point, because even these characters who are seen as very average contain abnormal traits. Um, Davis brings up the supposed plainness of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. She's not physically disabled, but she's seen as some kind of an, an outcast. And the resolution of her story is that she is brought in to become a, a reinforcer of um, the middle class white norm, and, and particularly in relation to um, race and disability, and that there's the mad woman in the attic, right? The Jane's heroic acquisition of status in society is to become someone who marries a guy who has mentally a woman that he forcibly extracted from her culture in an attic, and he's meant to be this idealized catch for her. I have a lot of problems with Jane Eyre, and that is foremost 
among them. But yeah, I was discussing Jane Austen in the What Have You Been Reading podcast that I did, uh, and, I, and I discussed it with Alice as well. And, you know, I, I was saying that I, I just found the stories really dull and, and unengaging because, um, you know, the story of Pride and Prejudice essentially boils down to, well, what if a hot guy liked a boring lady? Um, and Alice and, and Pratchett, who's expressed his admiration for uh, Jane Austen on a number of occasions, would perhaps push back about this. But there's essentially the conceit at the heart of Pride and Prejudice is that the protagonist is apart from society because she is deficient. And also Mr. Darcy is too proud. And the, the resolution of their story is that she is found interesting and he is found modest. So there is a, a normalization or a return to the mean that you know has become idealized as, as a goal for a lot of people, um, probably through the influence of books like Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice. That, that are seen of these sort of radical feminist texts, I guess more so in the case of Jane Eyre, uh, but which both resolve in a reinforcement of the patriarchy, or at least uh, middle-class English norms, rather than challenging them. Their, their goal is to conform rather than disrupt uh, their cultural expectations. And yeah, as I said, we see these kind of quick fixes, this idea of the, the cure and the, the return to the mean, frequently repeated throughout uh, the Watch and City uh, Discworld novels. So at the end of all this, Davis says that, you know, he's tried to make the case that disability as an identity uh, can legitimately be seen as a foundation, as the foundational model that situates the origin of the novel in 18th century England and France. I mean, the title of this chapter is Who Put the Da in the Novel? And I, I think, I guess, the weakness of Davis's argument here is that he says disability is the foundational model that de- defines the origin of the novel, whereas I think it's perhaps more accurate to say that disability is a foundational model for the novel, in that this normal, non-normal divide uh, that he's getting at here can also, it's just generally ascribed to alterity, right? The other. Um, we're talking about deviations of any kind. We, we talked about Jane Eyre's plainness and, and things like that, um, racial or, or even supernatural deviations. So it's not just disability, but I do think he's onto something with this um, normal versus non-normal divide. And I think more accurately, or, or perhaps more significantly, is uh, that the project of the realist novel and, and other realist media is to equate the ideological normative with the conservative normal. So all of this ties in rather interestingly, I think, with um, another analysis of Pratchett's work, um, a 2010 article by Thomas Scholes called The Making of a Hilarious Undead by Association in the Novels of Terry Pratchett, which analyzes Pratchett's joke construction in terms of Arthur Costa's model of association, uh, which we talked about in relation to Weird Sisters. This is the idea that humor comes from holding two incompatible ideas in mind that suddenly resolve rationally, although not of a logic usually applied to the situation that's presented. And Scholz uses a passage from Prune's first encounter with the Fresh Start Club to provide a logical proof of Costler's theory. There's diagrams and everything in this article, which uh, are perhaps unnecessary, but uh, yes, he uses the um, passage from Reaper Man uh, where Prune's first visits the First Start Club. So this is the passage where uh, Lupine, the, the werewolf, says, We only go along to the club to keep Reg happy. Doreen said it'd break his heart if we stopped. You know the worst bit? Go on, said Windle. Sometimes he brings a guitar along and makes us sing songs like the streets of Uncle Morpork and we shall overcome. It's terrible. Can't sing, eh? Said Windle. Sing? Never mind sing. Have you ever seen a zombie try to play guitar? It's helping him find his fingers afterwards that's so embarrassing. So, as Scholes explains, the, the joke here is that Reg can't play guitar. Not because he's bad at singing, but because his fingers get cut off by the strings. And Scholes points out that an essential part of the joke is that the reader forgets that Reg is a zombie and more readily recognizes him as a political activist, right? He's literally become differently alive as a character rather than being considered undead. And that once softened in this way, the undead cease being monstrous side characters and can now be used as protagonists and, and sympathetic characters, or that's Scholes' argument anyway. And he de- 
demonstrates this through analyzing a, a number of passages from Reaper Man and Carpa Jugulum as well, with the domestication of the vampires in that novel. But what he points out is that Pratchett's jokes continually resolve to the expectations set up by the idea that the characters are living rather than the one implied by them being undead, right? So although the, the passage I just read out about uh, playing the guitar, right, that does rely on the punchline reminding you that he's a zombie, right? You're, you're expecting it to be because he's bad at playing guitar and then the shot comes when, oh yeah, he's a zombie and something ridiculous has happened there. But Schultz points out that even this passage is balanced out by a further example that immediately follows about Sister Drell the Ghoul, whose meat patty should be avoided. Not because they're made of flesh, but because she just can't cook very well. So immediately Pratchett takes the, the same joke construction and flips it around. So suddenly there's a tension implied by a, a ghoul who normally eats flesh and uh, someone who, who can't bake well. And rather than resolving to the ridiculousness of the, of the ghoul, the supernatural side of things, we're back in the mundane, the idea that she just can't cook very well. Scholes argues that, especially in, in Reaper Man and Carpa Jugulum, that the jokes always or predominantly resolve to the mundane side of things. And this suggests that, you know, part of the way he incorporates these previously monstrous creatures into his supposedly everyday normal society is not just by telling you that they act by people, but through the actual joke construction, he's continually getting his readers to resolve the tensions of having a monster in society by um, reducing it to normal, idealized, everyday behavior. I mean, interestingly to me about this passage is that Prunes is worried that the ghouls, patties might be made of flesh. Just flesh by itself. It doesn't say human flesh. It says that her meat patties will be made of flesh, which of course all meat patties are made of flesh. But I think there's something telling about that coming through to me here um, as a vegetarian animal rights guy is that where we've talked before about quilting of words and things is that for the joke to work, it's, it's automatically assumed that flesh stands for human flesh, not the flesh of other animals. And inherent of that is an ideology that the two things are qualitatively separate, right? There's some difference between flesh and human flesh. And, and interesting for me, at least, about this passage is that Scholes concludes his article by comparing Pratchett's normalization of undead, undead creatures to Harry Potter, where the ghosts at Hogwarts are already presumed to be part of the mundane matrix, right? You don't have to resolve that tension because it's sort of already been set up, but also specifically points out the Twilight series, which is representative of this, this whole beloved vampire uh, movement. But that's particularly interesting to me because Twilight is where we get the term vegetarian vampires from, or at least uh, where it is popularized, to refer to vampires who don't feed on human blood, rather that just feed on, on non-human animal blood instead. But of course, there are uh, lots of previous examples of, of this before it gets named and becomes popularized in academia and culture. An obvious one for listeners of this podcast, and I think a fairly significant and extensive example, which is, of course, Pratchett's engagement with this idea through the Uberworldian Temperance League, uh, the Black Ribboners. But we also get the, the first example here in Reaper Man um, with uh, Count and Countess Notferatu, the vampires in the Fresh Start Club, the, the Cullens, the vampire family. They only feed on non-human animals. They, they don't drink human blood, so they joke that they are vegetarian vampires, which is obviously, you know, intended ironic, like within the text they say this is a joke. Uh, but this term has caught on within vampire scholarship, which long-time listeners will be aware is something I've become fairly invested in over the last six months or so. Uh, yeah, there's been 
a lot of scholarship following uh, Twilight about this concept of, of vegetarian vampires as vampires become uh, more friendly and domesticated characters in you know young adult and romantic series like Twilight and The Vampire Diaries, which uh, predates it in book form by the TV series, and you know things like uh, like True Blood. And there's been a lot of articles written about the representation of vegetarian vampires in these modern series. Um, I actually have a friend, Sophie, who has written a master's thesis about the representation of vegetarian vampires in these um, TV series books that's going to be coming out as a book soon. So I'm hoping to get her on to uh, do a bit of a special about it because people familiar with the Discworld series will realize that we see a prolonged engagement with this concept of what I prefer to think of as human abstinent vampires rather than vegetarian vampires because while a lot of the scholarship contends that this idea of um, vegetarian vampirism actually encourages engagement with animal ethics and vegetarianism, uh, my position is that it in fact reinforces ideas of carnism, the idea that it's okay to eat some animals but not others by yeah, reinforcing and, and defining themselves morally based on the, a divide between humans and other animals. But I'll get more into that if we do that bonus episode with Sophie. But yes, people familiar with the Discworld series will realize that this is something that uh, Terry Pratchett engages with at length and I think a lot more in depth than many other authors uh, with things like the uh, Uberworld Temperance League and um, the Black Ribboners and things. There is a mention of the Countess who only fed on animal blood in, I think it's Weird Sisters. But in Rupert Man, we get Pratchett's first prolonged um, engagement with this concept of a human abstinent vampire through Count and Countess Notferatu, who are members of the Fresh Start Club. And indeed, the Fresh Start Club, I think, is Pratchett's first official equal rights group, predating the more well-known campaign for equal heights, which first shows up in Feet of Clay by five years and eight novels later. Of course, earlier we had Esk and Granny Weatherwax mounting something of a feminist campaign in equal rights, though it wasn't a, a collective action, it was an individual protest. And even though that book ended with the establishment of a, a women's studies curriculum at Unseen University. As we've mentioned here, and as Penny Hill points out in her chapter on the Unseen University in the Guilty of Literature collection, there is a noticeable lack of female wizards among the Unseen University faculty in Reaper Man. Although there are gestures towards second wave feminism through Fresh Start Club slogans, such as the one about the boogeyman needing a door like a fish needs a bicycle, which is a reference to the 70s feminist slogan, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. So part of the Fresh Start Club being a representative for disability, racial and cultural civil rights movements is is a feminist aspect as well. It's sort of a amalgamation or pastiche, if you will, of, of these different movements. But yes, rather than some kind of animal and environmental ethics thing, the Countess Notferatu in Reaper Man merely forbids her husband from turning her into a vampire as well, or feeding on the blood of other women, uh, thereby reducing him to uh, feeding on rare steaks. So here we, we do actually see that idea that it's not okay to feed on other women, but it is okay to, to eat steaks. And I think um, later in the Discworld series, the, the Black Ribboners uh, rely on blood from the Slaughterhouse District. So yeah, in, inherent in this, we shouldn't feed on humans is the idea that it, it is okay to feed on other animals though. Although here it's more of a romantic jealousy thing. But as the Dean of Unseen University explains, he says he's read somewhere that vampires don't actually need the actual blood. They just need something that's in the blood. Hemoglobins, I think it's called. It's all to do with people having iron in their blood. And this idea actually comes back in Men at Arms, where I think it's referred to as, as homogoblins rather than hemogoblins. But if, if I'm to apply my animal ethics lens to this, this is sort of telling us that it's not necessary to feed on other animals, right? That, that would be the argument for other so-called vegetarian vampires that, well, they have to feed on something, so isn't it better that they feed on these other animals than, than humans, that they're perhaps more closely related to biologically, whereas what the Dean and, and Pratchett is saying here is that his conception of vampires, it's not actually necessary for them to feed on any animals if there's some kind of iron substitute sort of paving the way for what we see in, in series like True 
through blood and things. I mean, there, there had been earlier examples of, of synthetic blood, I think most notably in uh, the Vampire Hunter D novels and films. But yes, an, an interesting tidbit there to add to Pratchett's uh, conception of vampires and indeed undermining of sort of the fundamental concept that they rely on blood. It's also interesting to me that what's being asserted here is that vampires need iron, which sort of sets them up in opposition to the fairies in Lords and Ladies. We had the whole thing about the iron dispelling them there, whereas here we have vampires uh, being sustained by it. I, I don't really know what to draw from that by way of a conclusion, but I thought it was an interesting contrast. But yeah, what, what is sort of written here as a funny throwaway joke about the, these weird characters in the Fresh Start Club does go on, as we'll see when we get to the later books, and is that the seeds of this joke are spun into a genuine vegetarian vampire temperance league that becomes somewhat of a, a major player in the later um, Discworld Watch and City books. Yeah, this idea of having to forego that natural urge to drink human blood has to be denied in order for vampires to fit into Ungmorpork society uh, becomes a major factor in the incorporation of vampires into Discworld more seriously in the in the later books. And indeed in Thud we find out that the Countess Notfratu is now the treasurer of the Ungmorpork League of Temperance. So yeah, what, what starts out here is, as a bit of a throwaway gag, by following that logic we do end up with more of a um, moral or ethical theme that underpins the later Discworld series, but more on that when we get to those novels. Of course we also have the introductions of the other species with, with the werewolves, uh, which I'll talk about more when we get to the fifth elephant, Banshees, who show up again in, I think it's going postal, Boogeyman that we'll explore more, Hogfather, and of course Zombies with Red Shoe. Now Zombies have shown up previously in Witches Abroad with Baron Saturday, and I, I don't think it's really worth going into any extended engagement with, with Zombies, because unlike the, the vampire and fairy traditions that we've gone in depth on, I, I don't think Pratchett's really engaging with the zombie tradition in any way other than just using it as a, a trope of, of fantasy. He doesn't offer much reflection on it himself. In, in the folklore of Discworld, he and Simpson write that no one knows why some people are natural zombies. It may simply be stubborn bloody-mindedness, an inborn refusal to bow to any authority, even that of death, but that what death thinks of this situation has not been recorded. And that's true, right? When death does come to collect Wendell Poons at the end of Reaper Man, he doesn't really say anything. I mean, there's the joke about that was your life, but there's no real engagement or conversation between death and Poons. And I don't think there's any engagement between death and Red Shoe when he dies in um, Nightwatch. So might, might explore zombies a bit more there if it becomes relevant. And this idea of, of an undead rights campaign seems to be a fairly original idea to Pratchett. I'm, I'm not going to go as far as to claim he was the first. But I mean, there is a throwaway gag in the original Ghostbusters film where there's a montage with a, with a magazine headline that says, do ghosts have civil rights? Also around the same time as Rupert Man's in 1991, in 1993, um, at the start of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series, the main character of which is, is sort of your proto-Blade and Buffy the Vampire Slayer character. It is also an ardent defender of zombie rights. So yeah, there's a bit of a movement during the 90s to reinterpret these uh, traditional treatments of, of undead character things that we do see coming through in, in modern books like Twilight and uh, uh, True Blood as modern authors explore not just the incorporation of undead monstrous creatures into a fantasy setting, but really trying to work out or present a world where monsters can exist within our sort of real world society, which perhaps goes back to the idea of the, the realist novel that I was talking about before, in that these books perhaps present an abnormality in the existence of the undead and then seek to resolve that problem by having those creatures take on sort of average middle-class ideals and lifestyles, I guess more so in Twilight rather than uh, True Blood, which seems to be more a, a meshing of vampire and human society rather than the subjugation of one by the other. But I think Pratchett, both in, in Reaper Man and um, his later engagements with the Temperance League and things like that, definitely has the most yeah prolonged or deep engagement with 
with this sort of idea. That's perhaps all I have to say about Pratchett's disabled characters at the moment, but apart from representations, disabled characters, and engagements with disability in literary works themselves, another part of the Disability Studies Project is engagement with disabled authors. There's obviously examples such as Helen Keller and other modern authors who directly engage with the disabled experience and write about disability as a focal point of their fiction. But quite a few you know, canonical Western authors as well um, are or were disabled, including a bunch that we've mentioned and engaged with heavily on this podcast. So as Alice mentioned on, I think it might have even been the, the first podcast, John Milton became blind and had to dictate Paradise Lost and his later work uh, rather than being able to write it himself. Later during the Enlightenment, you had Alexander Pope, who had a, a spinal condition, and of course Lord Byron, who we mentioned during, I think it was the Masquerade episode, that he had a club foot. Or he is like Milton, lost a lot of his sight, and there's many more authors who were disabled or became disabled throughout their uh, careers, including, of course, Pratchett himself, who developed and eventually died from Alzheimer's disease uh, later in life. So yeah, an- another thing that complicates uh, disability, the concept of disability and disability studies themselves is that um, along with the shifting definition that relies on uh, society's definition of, is that people's bodies tend to develop disabilities as they move into old age. And you have disability scholars such as Irving Zola, who argued for the necessary universalizing of a disability policy precisely because of the idea that everyone becomes disabled eventually. They even jokingly refer to non-disabled people as the temporarily able-bodied, which is something that I think Pratchett would appreciate, in contrast to the Fresh Start Club's assertion that inside every living person there is a dead person waiting to get out. Um, Zola and these these other disability studies theorists are essentially saying that about uh, disability as well. And I'm relatively young, I'm in my early 30s, but while I, I wouldn't identify as disabled, over the, in the last few years I've started wearing glasses because apparently I have a wonky eyeball that doesn't want to focus, but yeah, I predominantly listen to audiobooks not just because, you know, they fit into my schedule and they allow me to read while doing other activities rather than having to sit down for hours at a time to read, but also because I find it a strain these days to read from a page or especially a screen for prolonged periods of time. I, it actually takes a, a physical toll on me. Again, I would not and I do not identify as disabled, but that is perhaps only because of what society tells us uh, we should be able to do. Yeah, they, these are relatively new experiences that I'm, I'm having to grapple with um, as my body and my life circumstances change. And there's perhaps some evidence that we see reflections of this change in Pratchett's writing, not just in terms of its quality, as we um, suggested in the, in the Unseen Academicals episode, but as Helen O'Hara notes in her foreword to Mark Burroughs' Magic of Terry Pratchett biography, many of Pratchett's most memorable characters grew in the same direction as him towards the end. As Pratchett's final illness limited his physical boundaries, his signature characters seemed to become similarly restricted, at least in body. With Vimes becoming a family man and an upright citizen who sits behind a desk and casts a gimlet eye over the world, and Granny Weatherwax ending up more a mentor to the young witch Tiffany Aching than a hero in her own right. As Davis argues, there is perhaps a need for greater engagement with, with disability studies, given that around 15% of the population, he says, I think that he's referring to the American population, are disabled, and that this will only increase with an aging baby boomer population. Which I bring up because this is a common argument that Pratchett uses in relation to uh, euthanasia. Um, in a number of his essays on assisted dying, he points out that the current medical care system is not going to be able to cope with, yes, an, an aging baby boomer population. So I think both he and Davis agree on the need for greatest, greater focus on uh, disability, both literature and, and the real world, perhaps. And along with the engagement of disability and marginalized communities that comes with the Fresh Start Club, in Reaper Man, we also have an explicit and prolonged engagement with the idea of aging through Wendell Poons himself and also 
Miss Flitworth, there was a lot of, or a relatively large amount of scholarship about the representation of older characters in relation to the witches novels, as we discussed on those episodes. I haven't seen any real engagement with aging regarding, yeah, Poons and Flitworth, even though they're central characters and aging is a central theme of Reaper Man. And while Wendell Poons is still a wizard and a zombie wizard, you know, Miss Flitworth is, for lack of a better term, your sort of everyday average older woman. And indeed, Liz, who is an, an older reader of Ratchets, says that she is just glad that Miss Flitworth even exists as a simply older female character without even the charisma of being noble or doing magic. And, and I presume that saying that Miss Flitworth isn't noble, uh, Liz is referring to, you know, actual royal heritage, because I think if we're, we're thinking of noble as, as a quality, Miss Flitworth is by far the, the most noble and virtuous character, or is presented as such in Reaper Man, so she would pass the uh, realist exam that Davis was talking about. Indeed, Miss Flitworth herself even, like, functions as a response to more fantastical portrayals of, of elder women and things. She is definitively Miss Flitworth rather than Mrs. Flitworth, because her fiancé, the smuggler Rufus, supposedly died in an avalanche, or possibly eloped, shortly before their wedding, but uh, Pratchett writes, being the practical woman that she is, she thought that what life expects me to do now is moon around the place in the wedding dress for years and go completely do-lally. So I put the dress in the rag bag and we still invited everyone to the wedding breakfast because it's a crime to let good food go to waste. And this is showing Mrs. Flitworth's practical side. But rather than uh, mooning around in her dress, as she puts it, being what life expects her to do, this is what literature expects her to do. Because this passage is, of course, a another passing reference to Dickens and the character of Miss Havisham in Great Expectations, who fiancé defrauded her and left her at the altar. And she now lives in a mansion that she calls Stasis House that has remained unchanged since her wedding day, right? She's still in the wedding dress and there's the tables of rotting food covered with cobwebs and everything. And this is the coolest thing Dickens has ever written, <laughs> precisely because it is so unusual, so estranged from the realist reality. This is a completely unrealistic uh, way to behave that does somewhat break the realist immersion of the novel. And returning to Reaper Man, this is probably a, a more direct and a deeper engagement with Dickens' work rather than just a superficial reference like we got in Armored, in that Pratchett is directly writing back to this kind of melodrama with Miss Flitworth saying that the first thing she thought was that the world shouldn't act as if it was some kind of book telling death that it's always very important to see what's really real and what isn't. So Pratchett's sort of on the side of um, <laughs> these uh, 18th and 19th century realist authors who are <laughs> looking for authenticity in literature, but he's he's also reminding his um, audience not, not to take fantasy as a template for life. You know, I've experienced people and I know there's times when I've been prone to it myself where you, you're put in a situation and there's a tendency to think about how you should act if this was some kind of book or movie. Like there's a performative reaction to life sometimes. Pratchett is cautioning against that. So it, it's at this point that I, I might want to reiterate that one of the reasons that I resist the idea that the character of Pratchett's death makes real life death easier to comprehend is that it's not real and he's explicitly telling us here not to act like it is. Perhaps rather than death himself, it is perhaps Miss Flitworth who Pratchett intended or desired his readers to to emulate. Yet as, as Liz observes, while Miss Flitworth visibly mellows in her old age, conversely Wendell Poons goes on something of a journey of self-discovery a la It's a Wonderful Life. Now the reference to It's a Wonderful Life is something I've seen in a number of secondary literature and uh, wikis and things, and is blatantly called out in the text where Wendell says, you know, it's a wonderful afterlife. But I really don't know if <laughs> this connection of It's a Wonderful Life is really there beyond that superficial referencing in the manner of, of Ratchet did with Oliver Twist in Mourn. Because uh, I, I rewatched uh, It's a Wonderful Life, um, and there's there's a couple of connections to Pratchett's work. Of course, it's a, a Christmas movie, so we'll see if it pops up again in uh, Hogfather. And also, the the main character. 
character George Bailey saves his brother from drowning in the ice at the start of the movie, after which point he becomes partially deaf. So this is a, a film with a disabled protagonist. You know, as a counterexample to the 18th and 19th century model where the disability has to be resolved at the conclusion of the plot, Bailey's disability, his deafness, is cured once the, the angels change history so that he was never born. So I guess at that point he's, he's sort of an undead character, which is interesting. But yeah, at that point, because his life hasn't happened, he is no longer deaf. And then the resolution of the, the film is that he returns to his life and therefore takes back the disability. I mean, that's not called out specifically in the film, but it's implied that he wished for a different life, which meant he wouldn't be disabled. And then by deciding that he would rather live his original life, we actually have an inversion of this model where the moral lesson comes with the return of a disability to the protagonist. But uh, something people perhaps forget about It's a Wonderful Life is this section where, you know, they show him the alternate reality thing is only the last 20 minutes of this movie, which is 130 minutes long. So the, the story that people remember uh, It's a Wonderful Life for is is only 15% of the entire film. But also, I'm not really sure about its relevance to Pratchett because George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life doesn't learn to accept his death like Hoons and the other characters in Reaper Man do, but rather learns that life is worth living and that the world would be worse without him, right? It's an explicitly anti-suicide movie, whereas in Reaper Man, Whittle Poons does enjoy living his prolonged life and finds a sense of community as a zombie, but it's also sort of seen as this correct action to try and restore the balance that he is trying to kill himself, and his plot is resolved by him accepting his death, or I guess he was already looking forward to it at the start of the book, but yeah, he learns the value of life only to have it, I guess, taken away at the end of the book, and that's being seen as a, a positive conclusion to his story, whereas yeah, in It's a Wonderful Life, the storyline is, it's a, it's a pro-life movie. <laughs> So, I mean, Pratchett is subverting this, but I don't actually think Wendell Poon's story parallels uh, George Bailey so much as Pratchett subverts the message of, of the film. And this brings me back to the engagement with death in Reaper Man as, as something of a, a comforting treatment, because in his 2003 master's thesis on Discworld as a Critique of Heroic Fantasy, Andreas Christensen writes that in Reaper Man, the early retirement and subsequent absence of death reveals how necessary he is to sustaining the balance of the metaphysical ecosystem, that despite our term fear of dying, we are very relieved when he resumes his post at the end of Reaper Man and people again can die in peace. The novel in many ways makes it easier to come to terms with the absurdity of death. When looking at the alternative, eternal life in this world, death seems like a relief. And that by investing in death's doubts and ordinary problems while retaining some of the awesome mystery surrounding him, Pratchett makes death easier to deal with. We know that he is always there and this knowledge should be a comfort as it is equally a source of despair. So this is again typical of, of a lot of the academic reads of Reaper Man that I've come across. But I have a couple of problems with this. I mean, first is something I tell my students to avoid doing is you can't assume the response of your readers, right? Christensen writes that we are very relieved when Death resumes his post at the end of Reaper Man. You can't know that other readers will share your response. And one counterexample, which I am providing in this um, instance, means that claims like that sort of fall apart. I also butt up against the um, use of we in academic research, which is more a stylistic thing. But again, that you run the risk of including people who don't necessarily agree with you in, in the statements you're making. And I don't mean to pick on Christensen, and, and this is a master's thesis, so it's not something that's been formally published, but something that is perhaps more of a refute of the, this kind of common reading is that Poots is really happy as a zombie. And it's sort of the point of the story in Reaper Man is that he only learns to live once he's died and then is granted that extra bit of life to rediscover the joy of living. This might be a, a good link to the uh, wonderful life thing. I mean, that that is the inversion we were talking about with It's a Wonderful life. So again, I think the, these kind of readings that go for this bold 
statements about death and metaphysics are often overlooking, as I did, the other side of Reaper Man's story about Prunes' experience after death and the community and happiness he finds there. I mean, something serendipitous, coincidental that struck me about this is one of the vampire books that I read recently is a book called The Silver Kiss, which is like the first Vampire Diaries book that comes out a year before and has many of the same plot elements. It's including rival twin brother vampires with the the main sympathetic beloved vampire tasked with hunting his, his murderous vampire brother down. And when he does this in at the end of the book, he then commits suicide by sitting out in the sun, which is something, as we discussed in the Carpet Juggalum episode, that a lot of modern Byronic vampires like to do. But yeah, it struck me with that book, which is also about the idea of accepting death. And, and obviously that's what the end of the book's getting at. But here again, we have another example of where this guy's task, and it's not his profession, but his, his task, his labor is complete and he has no reason to keep living, despite the rest of the book being a love story where, yeah, he falls in love with the uh, female protagonist, a human girl, rather than choose to go on living with happiness with her, having, now that he's completed his task, his life is considered meaningless or even positively fulfilled, that it's not worth going on living for the sake of his relationship if he has no work to do, which just st- stood out to me, given that I read it while doing all the research for, for this episode. And another inconsistency I sort of see in Reaper Man is that, yeah, Prunes learns to live through his life after his intended death, but he doesn't choose to or, or isn't able to stay on as a zombie like Red Shoe and, and help him run the Fresh Start Club and sort of carry this message into the world. It's his own personal experience, and then his reward is, now that you've had fun, it's time to die. And I get that that's meant to represent the coming to peace with the idea of dying, but Prunes was already looking forward to dying at the start of the book. He was already at peace with it, and by having Red Shoe be a zombie who, yeah, the, the, as Pratchett says, the process of zombification isn't really addressed or explained in the Discord series, but he, he has this defiance about life that allows him to keep living on that doesn't carry over to Windle. He sort of ends up back where he started. So the, as much as I'm talking about this Fresh Start Club and the portrayal of disability, the ultimate message of Reaper Man does seem to be more about accepting death than helping others to deal with it. And indeed, in his Richard Dimble re-lecture, uh, where he's discussing euthanasia, Pratchett writes, Let me make this very clear. I do not believe there is any such thing as a duty to die. We should treasure great age as the tangible presence of the past and honour it as such. But neither do I believe in a duty to suffer the worst ravages of terminal illness, and that if I knew I could die at any time I wanted, then suddenly every day would be as precious as a million pounds. If I knew that I could die, I would live. Which is the opposite of Prunes again, right? Prunes doesn't live until he discovers he can't die. So, not that I expect Pratchett's personal opinions 20 years on from writing Reaper Man to match up to what his characters are representing in that book, but it does seem that as much as the philosophies there do seem to carry through into Pratchett's later life, character of Prunes and what he's meant to represent does seem a bit muddled, both at the time and more so in retrospect, to me at least. As Liz observes, through Poons, Pratchett is, is able to address death and people's reactions to it without the distracting sadness of death actually happening. She writes that Pratchett and the Wizards are clearly widely read about the undead and try out lots of theories to dispel Poons, but by contrast, however, their reactions to his death are fairly stereotypical and unilateral, suggesting little authorial research into the area of bereavement or reactions to change and disability. This is a lack of research on the Wizards' parts because Liz then suggests that Pratchett's insight into disability and bereavement must have come from personal observation, with Pratchett having referred to feelings of exclusion during his early life frequently during his inaugural speech to Dublin's Trinity College when he was awarded his honorary doctorate. As he discusses in many of his essays and in the, the documentary Back in Black, Pratchett had a bicycle accident when he was five years old, which gave him which gave him a mouthful of speech impediments, that's his quote, and didn't learn to read properly until being given a copy of The Wind in the Willows at age 10, and often refers to feelings of isolation while at school, having missed the first two 
get days of term due to a family holiday. And Liz continues that she too has some knowledge in this area from having worked as a hospital social worker, living abroad for 30 years, and principally from her own experience of the reaction of the many mainly nice but thoughtless people to her and her daughter's fibromyalgia, which is more commonly called chronic fatigue syndrome. She says that from her experience, it's not at all uncommon for people to encounter equally thoughtless reactions from family and former friends and colleagues, yet find instant recognition and understanding from complete strangers in similar situations after just half a sentence of conversation, that we have little to thank from fiction, especially fantasy, for reinforcing social fears of the disfigured. In Reaperman, she writes, the wizards show clear denial about the death of Poons, who is no longer seen as a slightly changed old friend, but simply an other to be feared and dealt with, without regard to feelings or other niceties, preferably at a distance, and by leaning on inappropriate cultural knowledge and stereotypes, with the word zombie being tossed around in Reaperman, like many real-world people will use the words schizophrenia or autism or chronic fatigue, while wanting to try out any folk remedy in an attempt to fix the person or else distance themselves from them. And she recognises that Prunes does largely like she's done and lets them all off the hook, writing he is very understanding and grateful when they at least try something, anything, and that this is wisely not treated with pathos by Pratchett, but rather left to Red Shoe and his Fresh Start Club to voice what should have been obvious and to provide the understanding and companionship needed for Prunes to adapt to a very different life. The reactions of characters such as the Countess and Mrs. Cake are well observed, and the Countess trying too hard to adapt to her husband's changes, and that while Miss Cake might be a pain to churches, she's a typical parent of a special needs child, desperately wanting to protect her charges from an unkind world. And I've read at length there because, yeah, it's an experience I don't have, but obviously uh, this depiction of the Fresh Start Club has really struck a chord with Liz, and I just haven't seen it mentioned in any of the, the secondary stuff. As I said, I haven't been going to blogs and things, but with all the academic literature appealing to how the metaphysical side of the story helps people cope with, with death and bereavement and loss and things, none of them are touching upon the Fresh Start Club side of things, which is a much more human and applicable engagement with the issues, I think. And we have evidence here of it resonating with at least one reader. As for the characters of the Countess and Miss Cake, I've talked about the Countess kind of in, in reference to uh, the vegetarian vampire stuff. I'm not sure if she becomes an actual vampire by the time of Thud and the later Discord novels, but I'll check when I get to those. And I have to say, I don't really understand the character of Miss Cake. I mean, I think Liz is right that her dynamic with her daughter and things is very well observed and feels very, I was going to say realistic, but um, is very well observed and feels authentic. But I just, I don't understand the character of Miss Cake. I don't understand why she's the boogeyman of the religious factions in Eggmorepork. I don't know, I guess she's she's kind of, she's an overprotective parent or an appropriately protective parent perhaps, but I don't really understand how that relates to the religious stuff. I don't know, maybe this is just speaking to a part of life and experience that I just don't have, but I guess this would make more sense and maybe fit in more with the um, book's themes of consumerism and stuff if she was going to talk to the manager of one of the guilds or or a school or something. I don't get Miss Cake is what I'm trying to say. So if someone has a read on Miss Cake and, and sort of understands what she's meant to represent, I, I'd love to hear it because it's sort of put there as though the joke is self-evident, but I, I've never understood Mrs. Cake. But something else I think Liz is right to point out is this portrayal of bereavement, you know, which, which is something that I am going through at the moment, feels like it stems from personal experience. And whether or not it can be traced to Pratchett's childhood and school experiences, it appears to remain true of Pratchett's later life experiences with Alzheimer's as well. So in his 2008 Daily Mail article, I'm slipping away a bit at a time and all I can do is watch it happen. He says the part of the report he's helping to launch today reveals that 50% of Britons still think there is a stigma surrounding dementia and that the stories in the report of people being told they were too young or intelligent to have dementia, of neighbours crossing the street and friends abandoning them are like something from a horror novel. He says that when you have cancer, you are a brave battler against the 
a disease. But when you have Alzheimer's, you are an old fart and that that's how people see you and it makes you feel quite alone. So yes, I guess we could equate the idea of being treated like an old fart with being treated like a zombie, perhaps. Project goes on to write in that article that NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, says that the changes medication makes at his stage is minimal, but that we don't think so in our house, where those little changes make the difference between a dull day and a fine day. That the disease is, after all, about small changes, and that it may be that individuals may indeed be individual. So, again, this is harking back to the idea of individual care that we talked about last episode, that death represents by reaping the hate uh, one blade at a time. I mean, this is what I talk about, philosophies in Reaper Man really resonating and really carrying through to Pratchett's late life. But Pratchett writes that he's heard it said that some people feel they are being avoided once the news gets around that they have Alzheimer's. But for me, it has been just the reverse. People want to talk to me on city streets, in theatre queues, on airplanes, over the Atlantic, even on country walks. And indeed, Pratchett's profile skyrockets after his Alzheimer's diagnosis and he becomes a campaigner for Alzheimer's research and assisted dying. Yeah, he was knighted more for his work with Alzheimer's research than his services to literature. So his experience there is is quite different, quite the inverse of what Poons and other people living with disabilities might experience. However, as Burroughs writes, is that the slip of the keyboard collection which contains this speech reads a little too much like an obituary for comfort. And that Neil Gaiman's speech at the 2014 Discworld convention, which was the last one that Pratchett attended before his death, uh, likewise felt like an obituary. So there, there's a sense that people are mourning Pratchett before he has even passed. In a later 2009 article called Point Me to Heaven When the Final Chapter Comes, Pratchett writes that he is enjoying his life to the full and hopes to continue for quite some time, but that he also intends before the end game looms to die sitting in a chair in his own garden with a glass of brandy in his hand and Thomas Tellus on his iPod, uh, which is a, an image Pratchett keeps coming back to when these essays on death and euthanasia, uh, because he says Thomas's music could lift even an atheist a little bit closer to heaven. Uh, unfortunately, as we know, this is not how Pratchett was able to uh, greet his death. As Burroughs tells it, Pratchett's health deteriorated rapidly throughout the rest of 2014, and by the end of the year had advanced to the point that he had lost 90% of his vision, which seriously limited his mobility and made writing more difficult than ever, even through the use of the dictation software he'd been relying on for the past five years or so. Pratchett and his assistant, Rob Wilkins, whom he'd become increasingly reliant upon um, as his Alzheimer's progressed, apparently spent the morning of December 5th working on Pratchett's autobiography, uh, which is something he'd been working on towards the end of his life. He didn't get to finish it, but I believe uh, Wilkins in the process of finishing it himself. But yes, as, as Burroughs tells it, at some point that evening, Terry turned to Rob and told him quite simply that Terry Pratchett is dead now, and that that was to be Pratchett's last day as a writer, which is incredibly sad. I have a lot of trouble dealing with the details of Pratchett's death myself, you know, apart from being a, a fan and admiring him, just the story is, uh, yes, very sad and affecting to me. Um, I've broken down a number of occasions putting this section of the podcast together, so I don't mean to be flippant about any of this. But what stood out to me about that passage is the equation of Pratchett's death with his inability to keep working. And I think Pratchett is a, a particular example given his public profile, but also, you know, his passion and dedication to um, his craft, like the fact that he had put out almost a book or two every year um, for the past, what, 30 years or so. And I think he was lucky enough to have a, a job and a profession that was perhaps more attached to his identity and more creative and personally fulfilling than most people's jobs. But just looking at it in relation to Reaper Man and the engagement with Labour throughout the Death series, it is interesting to me in connection with the pastoral romanticism and the idealization of working in manual labour until you die, essentially, um, in Reaper Man that, yes, Pratchett equated his own death with um, his inability to, to continue his profession. Although he, he may have just been referring to his uh, general mental state. According to Burroughs, he spent the next few months slipping in and out of consciousness and with his vision, movement, memory, and thinking all severely impaired to the point where he needed help 
help with even the most basic of tasks. Pratchett reportedly died in his home on the 12th of March 2015 from the complications of his Alzheimer's disease. Later that day, Wilkins posted three tweets from uh, Pratchett's Twitter account, the first reading in the all-capitalized voice of death, at last, Sir Terry, we must walk together. And the second saying that Terry took death's arm and followed him through the doors and on into the black desert under the endless night. But the final tweet reading simply the end. So I don't know if that is a um, necessarily comforting um, sentiment for Pratchett and his fans for reasons I have uh, discussed, uh, but it's certainly an appropriate suitable one. So the corny thing to do would be to edit in some Thomas Tallis music to that tweet um, as we go out. But as I said, I, I found this kind of stuff very emotionally draining and challenging. And if I was listening to a podcast that did that, I would straight up break down in the middle of the street. So not going to do that to anyone else. And we've got very, uh, yeah, heavy <laughs> at the end of this podcast. So I want to end things on a bit more of a an upbeat and jovial note by bringing back the long absent segment of Miskworld. The things I noticed about the book, but didn't seem to fit anywhere um, else in the analysis. So to begin with, we talked in part one about the filmic influences on the portrayal of death with Death Takes a Holiday and Meet Joe Black and things. The other obvious cinematic influence on Reaper Man that I didn't talk about, though, is of course the 1984 science fiction comedy film Repo Man, which is where the, the book takes its name from. Uh, this is a weird movie <laughs> that seemed really interesting to begin with, and by the end I found fairly insufferable. But there is um, somewhat of a tie into the themes with Reaper Man, rather than it just being a pun. This is a film that begins with the protagonist Otto, played by Emilio Estevez, being fired from his job. And then he's meant to be sort of this, or he fancies himself as this anti-establishment punk sort of character that ends up getting a job as, as a Reaper Man, a repossessor of cars. Um, and somehow all of that ends up tying in with, with Reaper Man, Gang Wars, and a car with a radioactive alien in the trunk. But yeah, this film is meant to be some kind of satire on consumerism and 80s hypercapitalism, which as we've discussed on previous episodes is a ongoing if somewhat subtle theme, at least compared to the engagement with metaphysics uh, throughout the Death series. But yeah, so there, there's something there in terms of the title that it, it's more than just a part if it's gesturing towards this anti-consumerist theme and yet yeah, the premise of, of a guy getting fired from his job at the start of the film. The other film I saw mentioned in relation to Reaper Man was the Clint Eastwood classic High Plains Drifter from 1973. I think this was the second film Eastwood directed and if you know the twist you sort of understand why it is relevant to Reaper Man. This is a case where I'm not going to discuss the plot and, and spoil it for people because I, I hadn't seen this film and I didn't know what the twist was and I watched it in preparation for this and I think not knowing the twist of that movie is is quite um, important and would colour your experience of watching it. Also a, a more recent thought that I've had is the connection between death and the fates in terms of the crone and, and witchcraft and this actually came to me from Stephen King's novel Insomnia where one of the antagonists is named Atropos which is a reference to one of the fates in Greek mythology. The Atropos is the fate who cuts the lifeline uh, so it is essentially death. So yeah in, in Insomnia which is not one of King's better books we have a, a further literary representation of an angel of death but also one that for me connects the idea of, of the crone and the fates with, with death which sort of suggests that perhaps it's death and Granny Weatherwax kind of serve the same metaphorical function. They are somewhat of a, of a literary equivalent which is perhaps why she is his match because she is also a representation of death which I thought was very interesting if not perhaps all that meaningful. And finally I just want to mention the one man bucket joke which I think might be the worst joke I've come across in the Discworld books that we've read through so far. I mean this is the insertion of a common street joke um, not, a, not a particularly uh, racially sensitive one into the novel. It doesn't need to be there and I, I think it's a cheap gag that also isn't handled very well right the fact that he straight up says the punchline at the end of the 
book rather than just letting it hang. That might have been a, a better way to at least, if you're going to have the joke in there, have it be something the readers have to put together for themselves rather than just inserting this, this fairly crass comment joke. And what we've discovered is a really quite rich thematic book, perhaps even more so than it's been given ample credit for so far. Okay, that is going to do it for Reaper Man. Thank you once again to all the Patreon supporters, including BJ, our newest member. This experience was made a lot easier by the new chair and new microphone that I talked about in the introduction to the last episode. So thanks again for supporting the podcast. And thanks especially to Liz for writing in with her thoughts and essentially prompting this entire episode and I think inspiring uh, what seems to be a fairly original examination of Reaper Man. So thanks for that. And if anyone else feels like writing in with their thoughts on the Discworld books or the podcast or questions or anything, yeah, you can get in touch with us at unseenacademicalspod at gmail.com. Yeah, so I hope you enjoyed that and are getting ready to rock with uh, soul music. I'm hoping to be a guest for that one, but uh, yeah, should be back within the next month with an episode or probably probably some episodes about that. So yeah, see you then, I guess. Bye! And we're clear. Oh my god, Milton! Can you sit down, please? I don't know if your pairing is getting picked up on the microphone.